Well, I don't know what you're famous in your family for or in your marriage for, but I am famous in my family and marriage for my clumsiness, uh, for my uh, aptness to spill things onto objects that ought not be uh, experienced spills. So um, at one point, not too long ago, uh, my dear wife had ordered a couch that she was excited about. We waited months for it. There were all kinds of uh, product delays, shipping delays. It finally arrived. She was so excited for me to try it out. And I hopped on the thing and down went my bottom, out went my coffee. All over this new couch, the very first time I had sat on it. it was a facepalm, and the worst part about it is it wasn't surprising to Megan at all. She responded, to, in her, to her credit, she responded uh, a lot more, in a lot more godly of a manner than I would have in a similar situation. But I, that's not the only thing that, that I have spilled and I have stained in my life over the years. We, we can think about all kinds of things where, and, and minor things, ridiculous things, you know, writing with a, with a permanent marker on a dry erase board. We realize that there are certain things where you stain them and you can't remove that stain. This morning, we're going to be thinking not about a silly kind of stain, but a serious one, a serious and deeper kind of stain, but also Someone who has the ability to cleanse and clean and wash what seems to be unrestorable in the eyes of man. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We are coming to the end of our first chapter here at River City Baptist Church. And it's been a joy to, to march are, um, march my way with you through uh, the, the gospel according to Mark. This gospel was written in the mid-first century A.D. by Mark, who was an associate of Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' uh, disciples, one of the inner circle of three. And Mark is giving us essentially a, an ancient biography of Jesus. He's, he's causing us on page after page to encounter this person and all of his towering importance, this person who defies our categorizations and our expectations, this Jesus who is both somehow more stern and more tender than we are, and at just the right moments, unlike we are. Lily uh, read the passage just a few moments ago because it's so brief. I'm going to go ahead and read it again, and then I'll give you um, our two points for this morning. Mark 1, look with me starting at verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Here's what I think is 
the main idea from this passage for us this morning. You cannot get Jesus dirty, but he can make you clean. You cannot get Jesus dirty, but he can make you clean. Two things I want to think about with you, two, uh, two points that arise out of these verses. First, a scandalous encounter. We'll see that in verses 40 to 42. And second, a surprising switch. That's verses 43 to 45. A scandalous encounter and a surprising switch. First, a scandalous encounter. Remember how last week's passage ended that day in the life of Jesus? The the disciples were aghast to find him alone in a quiet place, communing with his father when there was this endless sea of ministry needs awaiting his word and his touch. Remember, they come to him breathless. Everyone is looking for you. Like, what are you doing out here? Well, in our passage today, we have an example of just that, of someone looking for Jesus, approaching Jesus because of, his, of this growing expectation of what he's able to do. Verse 40, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Before we look at his question, we have to understand something about his condition. This rotting skin disease, eating away at his flesh, had rendered him, according to Jewish law, ceremonially unclean and unfit, therefore, for God's temple, God's people. You would expect God's son. See, leprosy in the ancient world and within the the Israelite community, it, it was not simply an illness. It was a sentence. It it defined a person's entire existence. It wasn't, in other words, just a medical liability. It was a stain, a threat, and therefore lepers were outcasts. Victims of leprosy were were living corpses, the, the walking dead, and they were dead, not just to the community, but they were relegated to distant, lonely places. Leviticus 13, if you want to read it at some point this week for an edifying, quiet time, it reads like a dermatology manual when it comes to inspecting and treating various skin diseases that would threaten the health and the purity of the covenant community. In verse 45, Leviticus 13, 45, gives a social prescription. Quote, anyone with a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. This man was ceremonially defiled, unfit to be in the vicinity of the people of God, which is why this encounter would have been so scandalous, so jaw-dropping. A couple weeks ago when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars. 
it broke the internet. Everyone lost their minds, and people were aghast, people were appalled, but they could not look away. Well, I can't imagine if social media had existed in first century Palestine because this encounter was much more shocking than anything we saw between celebrities at an award show. Last week, we saw a an unclean spirit in the demon-possessed man, but this is the first time in Mark's gospel that we're encountering an unclean person. And this guy was very unclean, very deeply defiled. Jews couldn't even walk near a leper. It wasn't just you couldn't touch lepers. You couldn't even enter their shadow. You couldn't even walk in their vicinity without becoming compromised and defiled yourself. yourself. Leprosy was thought to be so contagious, so dangerous, that it was this constant threat. As I was thinking about leprosy this week in preparation for this sermon, I was reminded of the earliest days of the pandemic. And by the earliest days, I mean the earliest days, okay? So, so don't Think about vaccines and, and, and the politicization of the pandemic. Remember when it was just like all hands on deck, no one knew what was going out. We were going on, we were, we were freaking out. We didn't even call it COVID. It was either COVID-19 or, or more likely the coronavirus. And no one knew, we were scared because no one knew how it was transmitted. Everyone was scrambling to figure out what was going on. I remember watching one YouTube video by a scientist who said that coronavirus can live in your freezer for years if you don't disinfect everything before you put it in. So we were wiping down our groceries. We were doing it all. We were trying to figure out what kind of masks to purchase, though we had no clue. The whole six feet thing felt, at least to me, like a pretty random guess. Who came up with that? I mean, why not three feet? Why not nine feet? Why not never talk to another person again? It's, I mean, we were thinking about the 1918 Spanish flu, and there there are reported cases where you could have so much breathed on someone in 1918, and they would have dropped dead. We we didn't know what was was going on. Verses of the Bible began to take on new meaning. There was like a three-week stretch where my life verse became James 4, 8, Wash your hands, you sinners. The only thing we knew for sure, the only thing we were confident about is that we would need two things, hand sanitizer and toilet paper. But despite all the frenzied confusion in those earliest days, we were in it together. I mean, it was scary. It was isolating, but we were, we were hopping on Zoom calls. We were checking in with family and friends. We were figuring it out together. Perhaps live streaming church, which I want to say is a contradiction in terms, but it was a temporary accommodation. This leper enjoyed none of what we had in March 2020. There was no pandemic And yet he was living in complete and permanent lockdown. People didn't just avoid him. They scorned him. The wilderness, the the margins of society was his rightful place. This was the ultimate form of social distancing. His experience makes our little six feet rule seem like a warm hug. And suddenly, bursting to the foreground 
of our story, this leper makes a mad dash for life to get to the man that he's heard has cleaning, cleansing power. You can imagine the the crowd parting in terror as they witness this mass of rotting flesh fall on the ground before Jesus. According to one Jewish tradition, when a rabbi saw a leper, he would throw stones at him and shout, go back to your place and do not defile other people. Perhaps some of you can relate a little bit to this leper. Perhaps in your worst moments, you feel toxic, radioactive, like a, like a, a hideous contagion. And, and maybe that's because of something in your past that, that you've done or something in your past that has been done to you. Of course, this man was a sinner, but the focus of the passage is on his leprosy. Not the condition of his sin, but the condition of his skin disease, which was a form of suffering he did not choose. And perhaps that sentence haunts you if you reflect on it, because you yourself know what it's like to be a victim of someone else's sin, to experience a kind of suffering that you did not choose. And yet you're the one left to limp along. You're the one left to carry the scars and to carry the shame. I mean, I I trust that in a room of this size, perhaps many of you have experienced abuse in one form or another. And it's, it's, it's one of the saddest things, one of the greatest tragedies and ploys of the evil one in the, as it relates to the dynamics of abuse that it is so often not the abuser, but the abused who is left to feel filthy and dirty and shamed. Of course, God can intervene with grace at any point and convict a perpetrator of sin, but how tragic that Satan has manipulated and inverted the psychology of human shame so that it is so often the victim, the one sinned against, who feels like damaged goods. Unworthy. Unlovable unwanted, unclean. This leper hobbles to Jesus. He brings nothing, and yet look what he does. He brings nothing, and yet he dares ask. He dares to ask for everything. I think we can see ourselves in the leper in this regard as well. How do you approach Jesus? Do, do you approach him with desperation as your last resort, or do you have a fallback plan? 
this Jesus thing doesn't work out, at least I have this other safety net. See, when the leper says, if you are willing, when the leper says, if you are willing, it's not some academic inquiry. He hasn't made some mental calculations and decided, okay, I'm comfortable with this risk-reward ratio. No, he's on his face, begging in agony and in faith. No one else would have helped this leper get to Jesus. He would have had to make it there on his own. He would have had to summon the resolve to get to Jesus because his situation had become so dire. Brothers and sisters, how is your resolve to come to Jesus in prayer. If your private prayer life feels weak and feeble and at times, if you're honest, kind of non-existent, I'm not here to scold you. I'm here to help you. I want to invite you to do something. This is not a magic bullet solution, but it's helpful. I want to invite you to come on Sundays ready to pray. So often, when I feel weak in my personal prayer life, I find help by leaning into my congregation's prayer life. Don't underestimate the power of approaching Jesus together, the power of corporate prayer. We do it on Sunday mornings in our prayers of praise or confession, and we do it in the pastoral prayer. What I just did was coming to Jesus and boldly requesting things of him. We also have a whole meeting devoted to prayer every other Sunday night. Now, let's be honest, just because we're in a church service, does it mean we need to act all high and holy. I know what it's like. I know from firsthand experience what it's like to be distracted, easily, maddeningly, embarrassingly distracted when it comes to corporate prayer. I've been in many Sunday evening services where I've caught myself saying the loud congregational amen to a prayer I did not hear. Now, of course, that's a problem. I'm not going to stand up here in the pulpit and say that that's no big deal. But I, I, I do want to say we shouldn't be surprised when it's really hard to concentrate. You shouldn't be surprised, whether in private or in public with your church family, when it's really hard to concentrate. And it's not just because the satanic powers are out to distract by any means possible, but also because prayer is just not designed to be entertaining. And in a culture that has formed us and catechized us to be addicted to images and screens and endless trivia and immediate results, no wonder prayer can feel like such a slog. And that's why If you feel weak, if you feel feeble and distractible and pathetic in your personal prayer life, then again, lean into the prayer life of River City Baptist Church and let's go to the throne of grace together. And when we're there, let's not just ask for little things. 
Let's take our cues from this ancient leper who came to Jesus with nothing and asked him for everything. See, it's easy to come to Jesus with tepid requests, asking for little and, frankly, expecting little. The other extreme, of course, is a kind of name it and claim it swagger where where you come to Jesus brazenly, assuming that he must give you what you ask. But this leper from whom we can learn much, comes to Jesus boldly, but not presumptuously. There's urgency and deference in his request. He's not yawning his way to Jesus, but he's also not strutting his way to Jesus. He's coming in desperate hope and trust and asking for something massive, which is fitting when you're at the feet of a massive Messiah. Friends, little prayers are only appropriate for little gods. Little prayers are only appropriate for little gods. Let's not pray them at RCBC because the God we serve is overqualified for little prayers. He cares about little prayers, but as the the great missionary William Carey famously put it, ask great things of God, expect great things from God. Well, how does the the Messiah, Jesus, respond? Verse 41, Jesus was indignant. Jesus was indignant. Now, we need to pause for a moment because some of you are puzzled right now. You have a Bible that doesn't say anything close to the word indignant. It's not even a synonym. Perhaps you have a a translation or you're familiar with one that says something like, Jesus was moved with compassion, which of course carries a very different meaning. What's going on here? We, We have to face the question, does this mean, does this prove that things have been literally lost in translation over the centuries as the Bible has come down to us and that basically in our laps this morning, we have corrupted Bibles? Well, no. This is what's called, among scholars, a textual variant. That's the technical term for it. A textual variant, which is just a fancy way of saying that some early manuscripts say one thing, some early manuscripts say another, and we don't know for sure what Mark said, what word he originally used. Now, on one level... This shouldn't surprise us being 2,000 years removed, but even more importantly, and thankfully, it's important for you to realize that these textual variant issues are rare. You'll often find them flagged or footnoted in your Bible, and they virtually never, this is the most important point, they virtually never impinge on a major doctrine. And this is one good example Because both readings, Jesus was moved with compassion or Jesus was indignant, both readings reflect something true about the character and behavior of Jesus. Whichever one is original to Mark, we are worshiping as a result the same multifaceted, glorious Christ. Either he's moved here with compassion and pity, which makes intuitive sense, or he's indignant 
Not with the leper's question, much less with the leper himself, but with the circumstance. This stark, visible, putrid, disgusting reminder of how deeply the curse of sin has ripped apart the fabric of his good world. It angers him to see the effects of the curse in the fall. Literally eating away at this man's flesh. As New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger puts it, whichever reading in Mark 1.41 is original, neither is out of step with the Jesus of the New Testament. But whichever emotion Jesus is experiencing here, even if he is indignant, just outraged at the ravages of evil and suffering in his world, his response is thoroughly compassionate. Verse 41 again, he reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing. Be clean. Just imagine the collective gasp from that parted crowd. (gasps) They're waiting now that he's touched him. They're waiting for the contagiousness to spread in which direction? They're, They're waiting for the contagiousness to spread to Jesus, to compromise Jesus, for him to become unclean. But the leper's ability to make the clean dirty has met its match in this man's ability to make the dirty clean. Why does Jesus touch him? I mean, you think about it. He didn't have to. He cast out the demon earlier in the chapter just with a word. Jesus could have just said the word be cleaned, and it would have been done. Why did he touch this leper? Well, we can't know for sure, but I think it may be because this guy wouldn't have experienced any human touch in years. I I don't know if he had a family. If he did have any family at all, they, they probably would have occasionally just brought him food to the city outskirts and had to leave it there and he could only come retrieve it after they had departed. Just imagine the the cumulative, compounding, psychological effect of all of these months and years and decades of isolation. What we have here is a guy who has to be put back together in more ways than one. This guy has to be put to get back together, not just medically and physically, but relationally and socially and emotionally. It's like Jesus is saying to him by touching him, I can repair what's broken. I can restore what's lost. I have come to bring healing on every level and in every dimension that afflicts human beings as a result of the curse. Verse 42, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Can you imagine his his feet, which by this point would have just been toeless, ulcerated stubs, suddenly bursting his sandals because he's got toes. He is his, his knobby hands, sprouting fingers. He, he's all of a sudden got, got uh, hair coming back, not just on his head, but his eyebrows and his eyelashes. He's got, he's got ears and a, and a formed nose. 
His skin is soft like a baby's. This is a complete transformation on every level. Which raises the question for those crowds watching and for us this morning, who is it that can touch someone's life and alter their trajectory in a moment? Who can enter the bleakest situation and do a brand new thing? Who can touch the unclean and not become unclean? In an article titled, The Stain That No One Sees, my friend Sam Albury writes, quote, lepers were to be separated from people because they were seen as a danger, a contaminant. When it comes to Jesus, however, it turns out the leprosy was the one at risk. Jesus' cleanness is a far more powerful contagion than any dirt we can bring to him. There's always more that's right in Jesus than wrong in us. More grace in him than offense in us. More forgiveness in him than sin in us. However deep our mess goes, his holiness goes deeper. We will never exhaust it. So friend, the message of this passage for you this morning, if you are hobbling, if you are covered in shame, regret, if you feel malformed by the effects of sin in this world, whether it's sin that you have caused or sin that others have caused in your life, Hear the good news of this passage that in all of your filth and regret and loneliness and shame, you can come to one man, the God-man, to cleanse you and restore all of your dignity. Stop trying to just become a better person and sprinkle a little Jesus on top of your otherwise autonomous life, thinking that if you just come to church and do a few good deeds, that you can clean yourself up No, that's like trying to clean a floor with a dirty mop. It's only going to make things worse. We don't clean ourselves up and then come to Jesus. We come to Jesus and he makes us clean. And here's the thing. don't, Don't flatter yourself. Don't think that you are this unique exception to the mercy of Jesus Christ, that you have committed some kind of sin or that you have experienced some kind of shame that renders his healing touch inoperable, ineffective, that you're beyond the reach of his grace. No. When he sees your sin and your shame, he doesn't recoil in disgust the way humans might. Mere humans might. He, when he sees sin and shame, it actually just makes his heart expand all the more and make him move in even closer. As I said at the beginning, you cannot get him dirty, but he can make you clean. A scandalous encounter. And secondly, and more more briefly, a surprising switch. A surprising switch. Verse 43, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, 
But go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Jesus instructs this man to stay quiet because as he, we saw last week, he's trying to control the narrative about who he is and what he's come to do, lest he be misunderstood. So he's like, don't tell anybody except for one guy. You do need to go tell one guy. You need to go present yourself to the priest and follow the playbook. There was a, there was a complex ritual. You can read about it in your second quiet time this week, in the next chapter in Leviticus, Leviticus 14, this is a complex ritual for those whose skin diseases had apparently healed. They couldn't just waltz back into society and say, hey, look at me now. No, they had to be inspected by an expert for eight days before they could get a clean bill of health, which would then be their passport back into society. And this is why the, the leper, if, 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 we're, if we're careful readers, will note that the leper didn't just ask Jesus to make him well. He asked Jesus to make him clean, which was a bigger request. In, in other words, it's not just, will you heal my skin? But will you rehabilitate and restore my life? Will you enable me to re-enter the world that I've lost? So Jesus points him to the playbook from Leviticus. And in this guy's excitement, he drops it. He doesn't read it. He doesn't obey it. He disobeys this simple command. Verse 45, instead. Friends, you never want in the biography of your life for Jesus to tell you to do something and for the next word to be instead. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading, literally blazing abroad the news. Now, on one level, it's hard to fault this guy, isn't it? I mean, good night. Uh, his prospects have changed. Everything has been turned upside down for him. But there's also a, a sad irony in someone who has been delivered and is yet disobedient. In rushing to tell others about the person of Jesus, he's making an end run around the words of Jesus. It's never a good idea. But, but before we shake our heads at this man's immediate defiance, we need to look in the mirror because we need to ask how, how might we in our lives right now be making an end run around a command of Jesus even for a noble end, a seemingly noble end. But do you realize, brothers and sisters, that even worse than that, our disobedience is even less excusable than this leper's. Why is that? Why is our disobedience even less excusable than his? Well, because he was commanded to tell no one, and yet he told everyone. We've been commanded to tell everyone, and yet so often we tell no one. How are you doing 
obeying the king's command to you. Not to go show yourself to a priest, but to go make disciples of all nations beginning in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your home. Remember how we saw that instead of Jesus getting contaminated by the leper, it was the leper that got cleansed. Well, it turns out that Jesus, though in the encounter with the leper, it was the cleanness of Jesus that was the contagious thing. And yet, Jesus didn't emerge from this encounter unaffected. It changed things for him, too. Did you notice that? Verse 45, look at the end. As a result, okay, as a result of what? As a result of this man's disobedience, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. The leper who was confined to desolate places, is now in the city. And Jesus, who was in the city, is now confined to desolate places. The two have traded spots. So there is a sense in which Jesus, too, has become contaminated. We're only in chapter 1, okay? But I can't, I can't, uh, I can't hold myself back. We're only in chapter 1, but this is a little flash of the future, isn't it? Because at the end of Mark, in chapter 14, what are we going to find? We'll think about it this coming week, specifically on Thursday. Mark 14, Jesus is on his face begging. Mark 1, the leper is on his face begging. Mark 14, Jesus is on his face begging. And guess what? He says the exact same thing. If you are willing. If you are willing, Father, please remove this cup of suffering, this cup of your holy wrath from me. But the reason we're here this morning as Christians, as those who are defiled in ourselves but clean in the sight of a holy God, is because after that request, there was not a period, there was a comma, yet not what I will but what you will. We're here this morning because Jesus went from Gethsemane to Golgotha. From sweating blood to shedding blood. And Golgotha is literally translated the place of the skull. Leviticus 13 was clear. Lepers must live alone. Remember this? I quoted it earlier. Quote, lepers must live outside the camp. Hebrews 13 tells us, and so Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. On the cross, Jesus, after living a life of perfection, the life that all of us have failed to live because of our sin, we've all earned, we've merited 
punishment from God forever, separation from God forever, condemnation from God forever, but one person in the middle of history came and undid all of that by living a perfect life of unflinching obedience to his father. And after all of that, he went to the cross, not just to live the life we should have lived, but to die the death we deserve to die. And on that cross, he experienced the ultimate leper's treatment. He experienced the ultimate exclusion, the ultimate banishment, so that spiritual lepers like you and me could be welcomed and swept in to the presence of God. Jesus was cast out so that we could be welcomed in. He was treated as unclean so we could be treated as clean. He was treated as stained so we could be treated as spotless. He was treated as immoral so we could be treated as immaculate. He took the depths of all of your shame, all of your regret, all of your sin, if you're trusting him, so that we could be cleansed and fit for re-entrance into community. Ultimately, the community of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also into the community of God's people, the church. This is why we exist as River City Baptist Church. This is what we gather to remind ourselves of and to rehearse and to preach to ourselves and to sing about. 250 years ago this year, William Cooper, and I quoted at Alia Lansing's funeral, I quoted beautiful words from another William Cooper song, but this is, this is a different one that he wrote uh, exactly 250 years ago. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. A century later, another hymn writer, Robert Lowry, was marveling at this same stunning truth when he wrote, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I don't know what your experience with Christians or church is, but the good news of this book and this church and of the gospel that we have been entrusted is not that good people get recognized, that good people get rewarded. It's that bad people can get cleaned. Bad people can be washed. Bad people can be restored to the life for which they were made. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, if there's anyone here who feels too dirty, too defiled for your healing touch, Oh, Lord, we pray you would open their hearts, lift their eyes, give them hope, help them to see that your healing touch is contagious and you can make them brand new. And help all of us as individuals and as a church to live as those who have not just been forgiven, but who have been purified from all unrighteousness. Help us to remember that we can never get you dirty but you can make us clean. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.